Our scripture text this morning is going to be 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to focus on verse 16. We'll read verses 13 through 17 for a little context in just a moment. Several weeks ago, Beverly and I were attending a high school football game, and uh, this particular high school stadium was, was pretty big as far as high school stadiums go, and, and as you came down the steps... Uh, the exit funneled out to the left and there was a, a narrow sidewalk that had room for basically two people to walk through with, with rails on each side. And so as, as I came down the steps at halftime, there were four high school students standing there in the exit. There were two young men standing against the rail and two girls talking to them standing in the middle of the sidewalk. So it was creating a, a bottleneck. So really only one person could get by. So there was, a, there was a man coming. So I was waiting for him to come by. Well, one of the young men noticed that I was standing there unable to get by. So he reached out to the girls by the shoulder and he pulled them in and he, and he said, squeeze in, squeeze in. And so I, I started to walk by. And as I did, rather loudly, he goes, Make way for the elderly. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to think about that. But I decided to take a positive spin. I, I decided to think, hey, you know what? Here's a young man engaged talking to maybe his girlfriend. And, you know, there's a ball game going on. And, and at least he had the self-awareness to, to look and see there was a problem that he could address. He was willing to assist the elderly, and I, I was grateful for that. When we look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 give us one of the most wonderful promises in, in all of Scripture, a tremendous promise that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears and answers. But then in verse 16, when John gives an example when he shares how to use that promise, he focuses our prayer on the needs of others. He calls for us to be aware of the situations in people's lives around us and to pray accordingly. And that is the focus of verse 16. He calls for us to take this promise of prayer and to pray according to the promise for other people. And so as, as we think through verse 16, I want us just to follow a very simple outline. I want us to look at and think about the problem that we see and the prayer that we ask and the promise that we trust. So let's read together from God's eternal word. We'll begin reading in verse 13, 1 John chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that we should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, tomorrow is the beginning of a new year. And tomorrow, many of us, maybe most of us will make resolutions. We'll look back over 2023 and we'll see things that maybe need to change. We'll look at things that maybe we need to do better and we'll, we'll resolve. We'll resolve to have a more healthful diet. We'll resolve to exercise more consistently. We'll resolve to handle our money in a more disciplined fashion. Ho hopefully if you've not done so already, there'll be a resolution to spend more time in God's word, to read the Bible every day. And, and all of those things are are well and good, but usually when we think about making New Year's resolutions, usually our resolutions are about making ourselves better. We think about things that I need to do in order to help me. And so today, as we stand on the precipice of a new year, I want to encourage us to make a point to think specifically and to be aware specifically of others. And if we get right down to it specifically, I want us to call, I want to call us today as we launch into 2024, I want to call us to intercessory prayer for those who are struggling to walk consistently with Jesus. I want to call us to intercessory prayer for those who have fallen into sin, which is robbing them of the joy of God's presence. So let's focus on verse 16 this morning. And we see the problem that John sets before us. The first phrase of the verse, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. So John is telling us to see something. He's calling for us to see a problem. And that problem is, is pretty evident, but then we continue reading and we see there's a sin that, that doesn't lead to death, but there is a sin that does lead to death and all sin is wrongdoing. And when we start reading these phrases, if you're like me, we, we, we kind of think, John, what in the world are you talking about? So let's, let's take a moment and think about that and, and, and let's think first of all about some building blocks that will help us establish a foundation as we work through that phrase, the first building block we know is that all sin is bad. All sin is a violation of God's holy law. All sin is a rebellion against God's right to rule over us. In fact, all sin is infinitely evil because it is against the God who is infinitely holy. And all sin, because it is against God, it ultimately leads to death. Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So we know this, that all sin is bad. 
And all sin ultimately results in death and separation from God. And then secondly, we all know that we're all sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, James says in James 2.10 that if we are guilty of violating one point of the law, then we're guilty of the entire law. So all of us are sinners who are in need of a Savior because our sin separates us from God. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 59.2. He said, all your sin separates between you and your God so that he will not hear. In fact, this is why Jesus came. This is why we just celebrated Christmas. When we were celebrating Christmas, we were celebrating the birth of Jesus. But we were doing more than celebrating Jesus' birthday. We were celebrating the incarnation. We were celebrating the fact that the Son of God took upon himself and, and dwelt among us. We were celebrating the fact that the Son of God became man so that he was in a position as a man to function as our mediator, to function as our deliverer, to function as our Savior. And so Jesus came to be those things. And Jesus, as the Savior, deals with our sin that separates us from God and reconciles us to God so that in Jesus Christ, in his life, because of his purpose, perfect obedience to the law, there is righteousness, there is real goodness that will stand in the day of judgment that is credited to us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior so that we stand before God in Christ, not as law breakers, but as law keepers. Jesus in his death paid the penalty for our sin. As he hung on the cross, the father judged our sin in Jesus. So Jesus paid the penalty of our sin so that in his death we receive forgiveness. Our sins are completely gone. And three days later, Jesus rose bodily literally, physically from the dead. And in doing so, he conquered death, hell, and the grave. So in Jesus Christ, we have righteousness that will stand in the day of judgment. We have forgiveness that is forever. And we have victory over death, hell, and the grave. In other words, we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So here's the third building block, is that Jesus did everything necessary to bring us into a peaceful relationship with God. He, when we trust in him, delivers us from sin and death and delivers us to God and life. So, so what do we know? We know that sin is bad and leads to death. We know that all of us are sinners who deserve death. But we know that if we are in Christ by faith, we have life and a right relationship with God. So let's keep those things in mind when we ask, what is, what is going on here? Well, think about this. If I tell you a lie, that's a sin. And it's serious. And, and I don't want to undermine or, or uh, uh, understate that at all. But having not understated it, if I tell you a lie, it's sin and it's serious, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that I'm in a state of spiritual death. So if, if you called Pastor Josh uh, 
or Pastor Tim, which you probably would, you, you would say, hey, David told me a lie and that's a problem and he needs to repent. And you would be right. You would probably not call and say, hey, David is a heretic who is lost and going to hell. Okay, but on the other hand, if I came up to you and I said, hey, do you know what? Jesus of Nazareth is not the son of God. That's something altogether different. Years ago on the Dick Cavett show, Jane Fonda was having a discussion with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the conversation turned toward Jesus. And the Archbishop said to Jane Fonda, he said, you know, Jane, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jane Fonda said, Archbishop, to you, he may be the Son of God. But to me, he's not the Son of God. And the Archbishop said, Jane, he either is or he isn't. Now, when you hear her say, Jesus is not the Son of God, what does that tell us about her? Well, let's think about the immediate context as well as the, the larger context of, of 1 John. Let's just read uh, just a few verses. Go back to 1 John chapter 2, and let's, let's look at verses 18 through 22. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Children... It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So John is saying, look, there's a group of people. They are anti-Christ. They are against Christ. And they used to be a part of the fellowship, but they left the fellowship. And the fact that they left the fellowship of God's people was an indication that they were not really believers. So let's continue with what John says. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So what does John say? These people that went out and their lack of perseverance is an indicator that they are Antichrist. The way that we know they're Antichrist is because they're denying who Jesus is. Now let's look at the immediate context in chapter 5. Look in chapter 5 and verse 11. Okay, look, look and, and follow along as I read. This is, this is so important. Okay, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us what? Eternal life. And this life is in who? His son. Whoever has who? The son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. Now look down at verse 20. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Over and over throughout 1 John and specifically in chapter 5, what John does is he says, if you want life, the only way to have life is, into, is to be in Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. And he's always been that and he always will be that. And if you deny that, that's evidence that you are against him. Alistair Begg put it this way. There was a time when Jesus was God and not man. But there has never been a time when Jesus was man and not God. Do you understand this? What John is saying is, if I deny who Jesus is, if I deny what Jesus did, then I am denying the very means by which God gives life. Therefore, I am in a state of death. So at the very least, John is saying, I'm not talking about people who've rejected Jesus. I'm not talking about people who have denied that Jesus is the Son of God. Those people are lost, and he's not telling us not to pray for lost people. He's simply saying, that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about something completely different. John is saying, listen, I'm talking to the church about brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm talking about fellow believers, people who have trusted Christ, who are no longer in a state of death. They are in a state of life. But for whatever reason, they have fallen into error and confusion and sin. To me, the most memorable sermon that Pastor Josh preached when he was going through Hebrews was Hebrews chapter 2. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, We must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And what Pastor Josh did is he used a word picture of a boat that was beside a dock. And the, and the dock was keeping the boat from floating away. But as the river rose and as the current got faster... The boat wasn't tied to the dock. It wasn't really anchored in Christ and in his word. And so that boat began to slip away from the dock and it began to drift. And that drifting away from our relationship with Christ is exactly what John is talking about. There are people who are drifting and we all know them. Maybe you know someone today who is developing patterns of dishonesty. Or maybe they're growing indifferent toward church or apathetic to the things of God. Maybe you see a rebellious spirit toward authority or, or they're filled with pride. Maybe you know someone who's dabbling in pornography. You know someone who's not giving attention to the word of God. You know, someone who's falling into theological error, someone who's becoming materialistically obsessed with the pleasures and the powers and the possessions of this world. And you see that brother, you see that sister, and you see that problem growing, and their house is not burning down, but there's definitely a fire in the kitchen. And that is a problem 
and you realize it's a problem because you know it's going to interact with and slowly erode and meddle in their spiritual life. My mother's house is surrounded with hardwoods, which is a, a curse. There, there in, the, in the early fall, it's a beautiful lot. You know, leaves changing, it's really pretty. We look out the back and, and there's all types of, of beautiful things. Trees, not things. Um, but later in the fall, 3.27 million leaves fall. And, and, and those leaves get in the gutters and the gutters get full of leaves and sticks and gunk. And, and, and my wife has the attitude of that high school student down there at that ball game. She's like, David, you're too old to go up on that roof. So thankfully, I have people like Zach who can get up there and, and clean the gutters for me. But what happens if we leave that unattended? Those, those leaves clog up the gutters so that the gutters can't function the way they're designed to function. And the flow of the water ceases. And if it's left unattended, eventually, I don't understand how, but that water in those gutters can even begin to affect the very foundation of the house. So what do we do when we see that problem? Well, John tells us when you see that problem in a fellow believer who is distracted and drifting, he says, I want you to take up the mantle of intercessory prayer asking on their behalf from God. He says, I want you to look at this person who is struggling and I want you to look to God who is sufficient. And I want you to pray from that perspective for the sufficiency of God to meet that struggling believer wherever they are. I want you to pray that God would be merciful and patient and gracious to call his child to repentance, to give them time and ability to turn from their sin and to turn back from God. In fact, this call to prayer is deeply rooted in the mercy and faithfulness of God. It's interesting to me, is it not, when we see this response this is John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, is leading John to write this, that when God sees one of his children struggling in sin, his impulse, if you will, is not to reject them, but to go after them. Well, this is how God is. He is infinitely merciful. And in his mercy, he rescues and forgives and sustains and delivers sinners with a never-ending faithfulness that he, he, got, he guards his children and he will not let them go. Listen, our Savior is not content to leave us roaming and drifting in the wilderness. Our Savior is a good shepherd who will not leave his sheep exposed to the predators of this world. Our Savior is the Lion of Judah who will not have his little ones unguarded against the ravages of sin. 
Our Savior is the great high priest who will not see his saints unprotected against the enemies of God. Our Savior is the loving bridegroom who guards his beloved and will not leave her vulnerable to destruction. Our, our Savior is the mighty warrior who will not leave his chosen susceptible to hidden snares or the flaming arrows of the wicked one. Our gentle and lowly Jesus is a fierce defender of his people. And his mercy is too rich to not deliver us. His love is too great to let us go. His faithfulness is too deep for him not to respond. His grace covers a multitude of our sins. And so when he sees one of his own moving toward destruction, he calls his faithful people to pray. And he calls for them to be the means by which he brings rescue. We've all been amazed, have we not, to see how God has worked among the Naba? You know, when God determined to reach the Naba people, he didn't print up tracks in heaven and drop them down into Naba villages. We think that's silly, but he could do that. Amen. You know what he does? He moves in the hearts of his people and he raises up a missionary who's in Nepal. He raises up loamy believers who are nearby and he touches the hearts of people in Prince Avenue Baptist Church. And he raises them up to give and to go and to proclaim. God doesn't drop down tracks from heaven. He moves his people as the means by which he has, a ch he has chosen to accomplish his will. And John is telling us it's the same context here. Beloved, we need to learn this principle and have it deep in our souls. In grace, God has ordained to work out his plans through his people. And so John says, the prayers of believers can be the means of securing life for fellow believers who are caught in sin. I want to say that again. The prayers of God's people can be the means of securing life for believers caught in sin. This is the way God has always worked. In Ezekiel chapter 22 there's the story of God's judgment coming to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel paints a, a picture of what God saw when he looked at Jerusalem. And he said that God looked and, and he saw corrupt politicians. He said that the princes were people who were supposed to guard the vulnerable, supposed to take care of the foreigners and and the, and the widows and the orphans. And, and instead, the politicians of Ezekiel's day were actually exploiting people in those positions. They were manipulating people to line their own pockets. And then God says, I looked and I saw not just those corrupt politicians. He said, I saw crooked priests. The priests were called to differentiate between good and evil. They were supposed to teach people what is right and what is wrong. And God said, my priests are actually calling evil good and good evil. And then God said, look, and he, he saw compromised prophets. The prophets were to proclaim the word of God. 
And yet the prophets in Ezekiel's day were saying peace when there was no peace. They were giving messages that they claimed were from God, but they were not from God. And so God says, I looked and I saw politicians and priests and prophets who were all going their own ways. And it's, and it's no wonder that the people were confused and, and living in rebellion and idolatry. And so God said, in light of this situation, the judgment of God is going to come upon Jerusalem. And there was a, a, a gaping hole in the wall of the city. And the people could be behind that wall and feel protected. But with that hole there, he said, that's, that's the place where judgment's going to come. Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon are going to come right through that hole in the wall. And they're going to destroy the people of Jerusalem. And so before that happened, in what is to me one of the most amazing acts of mercy in all the Old Testament, God said he went on a search. And he searched and searched. He said, judgment is coming, but I'm looking for someone who will pray for my people. I'm looking for someone who will intercede for my people. And he said, if one person will intercede, those prayers will fill, as it were, the gap in that wall so that the judgment of God will be spared. In Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. God said, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But God said, I found no one. Habakkuk was the same way. Habakkuk saw the judgment of God coming. And when he was convinced that God in all of his sovereignty and goodness was perfectly just in doing what he would do, Habakkuk fell down before God and his prayer is very simple. He said, God, in your wrath, would you remember mercy? In your wrath, would you remember mercy? God, we, we deserve this, but would you be merciful? Is it not the same way in the New Testament when Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 looked out at the people? He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What did he do? He called his people together and he said, I want you to pray. And I want you to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest. I want you to give yourself to intercessory prayer. And in John's day, John is saying, and he's saying to us, look around. Do you see a brother or sister who's struggling with sin that you know will hurt them? We can't stand by and watch. We can't be like people driving a car, cruising by a, a wreck. We slow down to watch and, oh, we express our regret, but ultimately we just drive on and eventually forget because after all, it's not really our life. It's not really our family. But in the family of God, it is our life. It is our family. And so God doesn't say, you just keep on driving. He says, you stop. And you get on your knees and you cry out to God for mercy on their behalf. I don't watch a lot of football. But when I do, I really like 63 to 3. It's really nice. I like a game where I feel like I can take a nap in the second half and not really miss the status quo. Well, let's imagine we're at a high school football game and it's, 
It's not 63 to six. Let's imagine we're winning, we're, but we're winning by four points. And the other team is driven down to our three yard line and it's, it's fourth and goal with just a couple of seconds left. It's, it's coming down to this play. If they score, they win. If, if they don't score, we win. And so in that moment, nobody's going to the concession stand. Nobody's going to the bathroom. Everybody's engaged. I mean, the coaches are on the field, whatever coaches say, Z, 29, hey. They're saying, we can do it. Do your job. We can do it. You can do it. The moms are in the stands. Come on, you can do it, boys. You can do it. Even the dads who normally are just making mental notes about how they can help the coach, they're, they're engaged. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. The cheerleaders, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Yes, you can. Everybody's engaged. You can do it. And they run to play. And our team stops them. And the pronouns change. It's no longer you can do it. It's we did it. And everybody, the mamas, the daddies, the cheerleaders, the band, the coaches, the subs, we did it. Well, did we do it? Or did those guys on the field do it? Well, in a very real way, we did it. Because it's our team and, and we made a contribution. In fact, one reason we think we made a contribution is because the players, instead of being focused on what they're supposed to be doing, are out there doing this. They want us engaged. And so we're engaged. And if we see somebody sitting on their hands, we look at them like, what are you doing? This is a critical moment. And we're all engaged. You understand this is our team. This is our family. And there are people who are struggling. There are people engaged in battles. There are people facing temptations. There are people dealing with difficulties. There are people who are in danger of losing significant things in their lives. And it's us. It's us. And I dare say if someone came down here today and said, hey, I have a real physical problem. I want people to pray for me. Every one of us would say, we're going to pray for you. Absolutely. We're going to pray for you. We're going to hug you. We're going to surround you because we love you. But if someone came down here and said, I'm struggling with sin, I'm afraid a significant number of us would say, rejection, shame, glad that's not me. Beloved, that will never do because God calls us to mercy and faithfulness. Right now, you know someone. In fact, I dare say from the time I started this sermon, there has been some name in your mind. You know someone who is drifting, someone who's debating, someone who's dying. Listen, we can't sit on our hands as though we're just here to hang out and have a good time. Rather, we must hear the voice of God saying, ask for them.
and say, yes, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray today. I'm going to pray every day until God moves in deliverance. And if the gates of hell rise up against me in the strength of God for the love of my brother, I will stand. It's what God is calling us to. It's what I'm urging you to consider. It's what I'm urging you to commit to. If you have that name in your mind, would you say today and in the coming year, I'm resolving for the glory of God that he would extend mercy and goodness and faithfulness to my brother. If you see the problem, then offer the prayer. Then he ends this verse with this phrase in verse 16, the last phrase. God will give him life. God will give him life. That's tied very directly to verses 14 and 15. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and he'll answer us. God promises that if we pray according to his will, and listen, it is God's will unequivocally, absolutely, without hesitation. It is God's will that his people not walk in sin. We know that's God's will. So if we pray according to his will, and it is his will that his people not live in sin, then he will answer. And specifically, he says he will answer our prayers for our brothers and sisters who are struggling and drifting with sin. John is encouraging us that what he's calling us to is not a futile or a fruitless calling. It's something that God will hear. It's something that God will respond to. It's something that God will deliver. When we see and when we pray, God will answer. So the question is very simply, will we see? And when we see, will we pray? Will we hear and obey for God's glory and for the good of his people? In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing in our Time of singing is a time of worship, but it's also a time of ministry. I want to encourage you to think through this. And as we sing, if a person comes to your mind or if a person has come to your mind and you're impressed to pray for that person, I, I want to ask you to make a commitment today. To make a commitment not just to pray today but to put that person's name somewhere where you're willing and committed to pray every day until God faithfully responds with his promise and he gives life. Will you make that promise today to say, I will intercede for my brother. I will intercede for my sister and I will until God brings deliverance. Let's pray together.